Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. And we're going to be continuing in our series on Mark's Gospel. And this week we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. As I mentioned last week, from Mark chapter 2, verse 1, through Mark 3, verse 6, Mark gives us a, a series of five different conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. And this week we're going to be seeing the second of those. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. You can read along in your Bible. It will be up here on the screen. So hear now the word of your creator, your redeemer, your sovereign Lord. Once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, an important Christian leader in the early days of me becoming a believer in the late 1970s was a man named Francis Schaeffer. He was a very key thinker, and he wrote a lot of books. And in fact, a few years ago, this is, this is Francis Schaeffer right here. And I wanted to take a vote this morning. Who thinks I ought to grow me a goatee like that? <laughs> what do you all think? If we could, yes, yes, my wife's not here to vote against it. So she is home with sick grandchildren this morning. And so, and if you can throw up the next picture too, even better. If I wore knickers like that, would y'all think I would sound more intelligent up here? What do y'all think? Yes. Is that what we want? Um, well, Francis Schaeffer not only looked the part of an intellectual, he truly was an intellectual. A couple of years ago, in 2020 was actually the year that COVID broke out, I had set out, I often will pick one author or one theme and read deeply that year, and I read 28 books that either Francis Schaeffer had written or that were like biographies about Francis Schaeffer. It was a very deep dive into his thought. He's a very critical thinker. But one of the things I learned that year, even though I had read some Schaeffer before, I had never really read his biography. And what I came to discover was, in the early 1950s, Francis Schaeffer went through an extreme crisis of faith. In fact, he almost, what we would call today, deconstructed and lost his faith. He, he tore his faith down to the foundations to determine if he really believed what was in the scripture. And what had prompted this was Francis Schaeffer, as a young man, had become involved with what is known as fundamentalism and a very legalistic strain of fundamentalism. And Schaeffer had gone through seminary, he had been a pastor, and then he was going to Europe uh, post-World War II try and serve as a missionary, and he discovered that the things that he had been arguing about and fighting over doing were not addressing anyone's needs. They didn't seem to really apply to real life, and Schaefer started struggling and questioning everything that he believed. Now, thankfully, Schaefer came through that, and why most people even know him today, because he had not written much before that or whatever else, was he came out and he said, no, the Christian faith is true. Unfortunately, we've built a bunch of things around it that are problematic, and I need to strip some of that away to get down to the faith. But he became known, instead of a person 
who was believing and speaking and teaching and arguing over things that were irrelevant, what Schaefer became known for was he founded a place called Labrie in Switzerland where drug addicts and hippies and people from all over were dropping in and many of them in fact became believers through Francis Schaefer. Man that taught me apologetics in seminary actually became a believer. He went home to, uh, to France when he, uh, from Harvard and when he was there over the break, he went and visited Francis Schaeffer, and in a several hour conversation, Schaeffer convinced him of the reasonableness of the Christian faith, and Bill Edgars is now retired after having spent generations teaching believers on the reasonableness of the Christian faith. But Schaeffer's struggles came about, and it almost drove him away from the faith over this extreme form of legalism and fundamentalism. And I wish it was restricted to the early 1950s, but it's not. It's a problem in our own day, and in fact, it was a problem in Jesus' day. That's why there's this series of five conflicts, and we're going to see what really lies at the heart of that today as we look at Jesus and sinners, and also Jesus and the Pharisees, and how that works. So notice here, we begin as we're looking in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Just to point out real briefly, there's another setup by Mark that we see Jesus after he has done the healing we saw last week. You remember he healed the paralytic, and of course, whenever Jesus heals people, what happens? Crowds start to gather. And then notice what Mark tells us in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. Why is Jesus out aside the town and out by the lake? He's got to get away from the crowds. We've got the same pattern we've seen over and over again. But once again, Jesus goes away to get by himself. And what happens? The crowds still follow. And then when they finally follow, what does Jesus do again? He teaches the word of God to them. Notice Mark just subtly keeps bringing this same pattern up. He's hammering this theme to show us Jesus' life rhythm and Jesus' priority of teaching the Word of God. The things that we might notice are the miracles, quite honestly, but Jesus has a priority of teaching the Word. And when we think of discipleship, we oftentimes think of information exchange, but Mark keeps pointing out to us some of Jesus' rhythm, how much Jesus needs time alone with the Father. So just notice in passing that Mark does that because these are the themes that he wants us to kind of pick up as we move through the gospel. But then he tells us in verse 14, Jesus, Mark doesn't tell us specifically, but Jesus returns back to the town because that's where the tax collector would be situated. So he'd been out by the lake, he's teaching the crowds, and then he goes back into the town. And we read in verse 14 that Jesus calls this individual named Levi, who is a tax collector. So notice we see in verse 14, and this harkens back to what we've seen just as verse 13 harkened back to the pattern we saw in chapter 1. This call of Levi should sound very familiar to you. Jesus walks up to an individual, says, follow me, and the individual immediately leaves everything, gets up and follows after Jesus. That's the exact same pattern we saw with uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and then that we saw with James and John, and now is the third specific instance where we're told the same pattern. Jesus walks up to what seems to be an unlikely individual, issues a simple call, follow me, and they drop everything and leave to follow after them. But here, I would point out, this is an even more radical response, because for Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were all fishermen. If they leave and it doesn't work out, this following Jesus thing, what will they do? You go back to fishing. But if you're a tax collector and you leave, you're done. There's no going back. And as we're going to see in a moment, tax collecting was a very lucrative business. So this is an astounding thing that this tax collector, Levi, leaves everything to follow after Jesus. And he can't go back when he does it, but this is a pattern for us of what it means to be a disciple. Now, it's interesting that there's some question about who this Levi is, because Levi is clearly his name here, 
but he's not mentioned in any of the lists of disciples. We have the list of disciples in the Gospels, but Levi is not mentioned in any of them. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, Mark's going to list the 12 disciples. And interestingly, he lists a James, the son of Alphaeus, which is the same name as Levi's father. And he mentions Matthew, the tax collector, which is the same occupation that Levi has. And all three Gospels list Matthew, the tax collector. None of them list uh, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. So what it means is probably, there, there's three options here. Um, number one, it could be that this Levi is not one of the 12 disciples. We do see Jesus call many people in the Gospels that are not among the 12 disciples. But it could be that Levi has a second name, which is very, very common. He could be James, the son of Alphaeus, is another name. I think the most likely scenario is Levi took the name Matthew upon his conversion. We see, for example, with Simon, who's also known as Peter, who's also known as Cephas, which is an Aramaic form of it. And we see when Saul of Tarsus becomes a believer, he takes the name Paul, okay? And I think here, in my estimation, Levi probably took the name Matthew because Matthew actually records that he was sitting at his booth and in a very, basically the same incident, it appears, Jesus comes and calls him. And we know that Matthew was a tax collector and came. So I think it's probably that, but it could be that this is just another person that Jesus called who became a follower and does not become one of the 12. But the really important thing here is not whether it's Levi or James or Matthew. The really important thing is it's Levi the tax collector. That's the central thing that's going on in this story. So notice it says that he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, one of the things that's hard for us sometimes, and part of my job, is there are things that can be very different between our culture and theirs. So this is shocking to you all, but tax collectors were not popular back then. <laughs> Unlike today, where if you got a call from the IRS and they said they were coming to visit, you would probably throw a party. They didn't like tax collectors back then. Okay, they were very unpopular. And there's actually a reason for that. Of course, we all don't like them. People struggle with the IRS and all that, and in every system in the world they do that, but it was doubly so back then, because in the Roman system, the way the Romans had set this up, and it was for the good of the Roman government, but the Romans didn't just hire you, it was not something your father did, they actually put out and you bid money to become a tax collector. And whoever paid the highest bid got to be the tax collector. And then you got your money by going out and squeezing your neighbors and getting money out of them to not only cover what you paid the Romans, but then your actual pay and profit was the excess above that. So as you can imagine, am I encouraged to be honest in that system? No, I am not encouraged to be honest. In fact, I'm encouraged to be dishonest in that system because that is how I make my money. I have to turn over a certain amount to Rome, but the way I'm going to actually feed and take care of myself is by getting money above and beyond what I bid to get it. And so this made the tax collectors extremely unpopular for three different reasons. Number one, you're making your neighbors and your countrymen pay. Nobody likes paying taxes and you're the one who's making them pay taxes. Number two, you're not making them pay taxes to their own countrymen, you're paying taxes to the Romans, okay? In this case, he's probably actually working for Herod, okay, the, the local tetrarch, but it's all ultimately going to Rome. And so the people said, you're a traitor. You're not only taking my money, and I know you're taking more than you're supposed to, but you're doing it for the Romans. And then that third thing is your profit came from overcharging people. So when there's ever any question, you're going to charge them more than what they did. And so the people rightly said, you're a traitor and you're ripping me off while you're being a traitor. And then on top of it, I could really add a fourth reason, which is tax collectors became very wealthy. 
very wealthy. Whenever we see them in the Gospels or wherever else, they're doing well. So as you can imagine, the people looked at this and they did not like the tax collectors. But it's not just the everyday people. The religious authorities specifically wrote a lot about the tax collectors and they despised them even more than the everyday people. So for example, they listed groups of people that were evil and bad and tax collectors were in the list with murderers and robbers. So yes, this person killed people or he could have been a tax collector. It's pretty much the same thing. There were two main groups um, that kind of argued that these rabbis that had had a lot of influence, their names were Hillel and Shammai, and they almost never agree with one another. Sometimes the arguments, Jesus, you know, uh, can a person get divorced for any or every reason, or is there no reason to get divorced? That's Hillel and Shammai in the background. They're trying to get Jesus to take sides, okay? But you know one thing they did agree on? They agreed that tax collectors were awful. And instead, they, and in fact, they both said, if a tax collector asks you a question, you can lie to him and it's not wrong. God gives you a mulligan on that. Okay? And they both agreed. Both schools thought that. Okay? Um, the touch of a tax collector made your house unclean. Just their presence made your house unclean. And then they had these extensive lists uh, of things that were, that were going on there. Um, and the tax collectors were always kind of the worst. And so the, uh, the, a Jew who collected taxes was disqualified from being a judge. They were disqualified from being a witness in court because you were considered automatically to be not trustworthy. Um, they were expelled from the synagogue and your entire family was disgraced. That's how the religious authorities viewed tax collectors and sinners. So when Jesus comes and he sees a tax collector, and remember, this is on the heels of he's just pronounced, I have the authority to forgive sin. And they're already upset about that. And then Jesus walks out, and now he calls a tax collector. He's establishing a relationship and calling a person to be his follower, a person who is a social outcast, who is universally despised. But let me tell you, that should give you and me hope. Seriously. There is nobody outside the grace of God. There is nobody that Jesus looks and says, there's been too much there in your past. See, if that was the case, Levi's not going to become a disciple. Jesus calls this person who no one else wanted anything to do with, but Jesus says, you're going to be my follower. And if I'm right that this is actually Matthew, in fact, you're going to write a gospel. You are going to be the one through whom I'm going to send my word Forth. And interestingly enough, you're not going to write a gospel to the Gentiles who wouldn't care that you were a tax collector. You're going to write a gospel that is really oriented towards the Jews, the very people who've despised you. That is what Christ does. Brothers and sisters, take hope when you read a call like this. Because no matter what has been there in your past, the grace of God is greater than all your sin and all my sin. Amen? Amen. So, now, at this point, if we were there and we were advising Jesus, we would say, okay, Lord, now's the time to pull back. Okay, you, you said you could forgive sin, and then you went and you called a tax collector. So let's, let's throw some stuff out for the Pharisees to make them think that everything's okay. Jesus says, I got an idea. Let's have a big public feast, and I'll sit down and I'll hang out with all the tax collectors and sinners. Okay, this is not how to win friends and influence people. Okay, that's not, Jesus is not following political correctness here at all. Notice what he does in verses 15 and 16. Jesus is having dinner at Levi's house. He's not keeping it quiet. He's having dinner with a whole group of tax collectors and sinners. And I'm going to talk about that term in just a minute. Now, it was customary that when someone converted, they would oftentimes throw a big celebratory meal. Okay, makes good sense. 
But we might have expected, with all the pressure Jesus is already causing, the dust-up he's causing, let's keep this meal quiet. But apparently he doesn't. Who, does, who, who are Levi's friends? Right. It's not the local rabbi. They won't have anything to do with it. It's a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, this group we're going to come to in a moment. So who does Levi invite to the party? All of these people. But notice here, Jesus is sharing a meal with people that the Pharisees wouldn't even let come into their house. And the Pharisees absolutely would not eat with them because to eat with them was to come into contact and their sin defiled you. That's the way it works. See, that's, this is the way fundamentalism and legalism works, is if I come into contact with sin, the grace of God is not going to work through me to impact them. No, I'm going to get defiled by their sin. Whether I participate in their sin or not, I'm going to get defiled. So the Pharisees can't believe that Jesus is doing this. And it's not just the tax collectors. Notice, <clears throat> and some translations have sinners in quotes, like the NIV does here. Now, the reason for this is the term sinners, which is just literally the term sinners. That's all it is in the Greek. But it was a technical term among the Jews of the time. The Mishnah, which is an ancient Jewish writing, had a whole list of really terrible people. There were gamblers. There were moneylenders. There were people who traded during the Sabbath that kept doing business during the Sabbath. There were thieves, the violent, there were tax collectors were in this list. And then there were a couple of really terrible things. There were people who raced doves for sport. I mean, isn't that horrible? I mean, <laughs> who would think? This is thrown into the list. There's thieves and violent people, and if you race doves for sport, apparently you are out with them. I don't know. Well, yeah, I guess it's, that's what they thought it was, some kind of chicken fight or something. I don't know what they were doing. But interestingly, shepherds are in the list, which is kind of funny since the Lord is my hmm, Kind of interesting. Since King David, my hero, was a shepherd, and since when Messiah was born, the first announcement from angels came to hmm, Apparently, the Lord and the Pharisees were of a different opinion regarding what shepherds were like. But see, there was this whole list of people because what they were really getting at was it included people who directly violated God's law. They were violent. They were thieves. They, they broke one of the, the commandments of God. But it also included all kinds of people who simply couldn't follow all the extra rules that the Pharisees had set up. Because what they tended to do was, well, the, the Torah says you can't do X, but what we're going to do is we're going to add on Y and Z to make sure you don't even get close to X. Okay? We're going to build bigger things around it, and you can't do any of those either, even though the Scripture doesn't say that. Jesus has this conflict. He, he points out that he said, you know, God told you to tithe, but God said, don't worry about things like mint and dill and cumin. It's too small. Don't worry about it. And they said, oh, no, we're going to worry about it. Because in essence, we're holier than God, which should be a concern. <laughs> because no, you're not. You're not remotely nearly as holy as God. But that's what they're doing with these rules. And so the Pharisees referred to them either as sinners or the people of the land. That was their derogatory term. They're just the people of the land. I'm not sure why that was a terrible thing to them, but that's what they do. And they say, we refuse contact with them and we absolutely will not eat with them because one of the things is they don't do all of our ceremonies for washing to be ritually purified before they eat their meal has nothing to do with whether they're following Torah and what you're allowed to eat or not to eat. It's all of these things that they've added to the law of God. And if you do those things, you're unclean. And you're so unclean, our being in your presence is going to now defile us before God. And remember, it's over things that God never even actually spoke about, one way or another. And so 
the Pharisees came down and what they had developed was that the essence of the faith and the essence of faithfulness to God was to separate themselves from such people. In fact, the word Pharisee at its root means to be separate. And we're not being separate unto God, really. We're just separate from all those dirty sinners out there is what we are. Before the Pharisees were, you know, if you were one of these people, before the Pharisees are going to share a meal with you or do anything with you, they would demand that basically you clean yourself up, you prove this for a period of time, and then we'll talk about whether we'll have contact with you. They are all about building walls between themselves and other people. And then the new rabbi, the one who last week, he did heal a guy, but he said something about he had the authority to forgive sins, is eating with them. He doesn't just bump into them in the marketplace. He's actually sitting at a meal with them. And whether it's in Levi's house or in uh, Jesus's house, the, the Greek's actually a little bit ambiguous. The, the NIV says directly it's Levi's house. But either way, the picture is Jesus is more or less the host of the meal. And he's here, and he's in fellowship with all of these people. They are scandalized. Why on earth would he do this? And that's why the word goes back, and they're, you, you can kind of see it's growing as we move through these five stories. They're still not directly asking Jesus. They're kind of now challenging the disciples. Why in the world is your master doing this? Why would he do this? Um, they're grumbling about it. They're scandalized that he would do it. And then notice in verse 17, Jesus responds. On hearing this, Jesus says to them, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus here is using proverbial wisdom to show the foolishness of the Pharisaical approach. They all recognize this, and in fact, working to bring people into relationship with God was often related to the work of a doctor. You, you have a person who is sick with sin, and our job is to help them be healthy. And what Jesus is saying here is, would a doctor tell sick people, listen, yeah, before you come into the office, get over your sickness, then come see me. What would you do if you have called a doctor and that was their response? I mean, that's insane. I'd be finding another doctor, right? I'm a dentist, but get your tooth well before you come in to let me work on your teeth. The whole thing makes no sense at all. But Jesus says, that's actually what you all are doing. See, you're acting like a doctor should tell people get healed before they come to see the doctor. But the whole point is the sick are supposed to come to the doctor and then the doctor's supposed to have the influence to be able to make them well. And so Jesus says, I'm not here to try and tell them to fix themselves before they come to me. I'm the doctor who's here to heal the sickness. And so Jesus, the son of man, has come to seek and to save the lost, not to put them off, not to say I won't have anything to do with you, not that you're going to defile me. I've actually come to seek and to save the lost. So in Luke 19, 10, Jesus literally says this, the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. You remember in Luke chapter 15, we've got the parables, the most famous being the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the coins and all these things that are going there where Jesus is saying, I'm not just neutral towards it. I am seeking those who are lost. I am reaching out to them. And here's a newsflash for you Pharisees. To do that, I have to be with them. If my entire demeanor communicates to them, I want nothing to do with them. Do you think that's going to attract them? to the kingdom of God? Is that going to draw them on? And so when Jesus actually spoke these words in Luke 19, he's speaking to another uh, disreputable sinful man named Zacchaeus, and he's eating at Zacchaeus's house. And everybody is scandalized that Jesus would eat with this man Zacchaeus. But Jesus says, don't you understand? I came to seek and save the one that was lost. And if you read the story, you remember Zacchaeus has climbed up in a tree, just wants to see Jesus, and Jesus takes the initiative. Zacchaeus, get out of the tree. I'm coming to your house to eat. That's what I'm doing because I'm here to reach out to you. This is Jesus's paradigm. It's not a bug in his mission. It's a feature. 
It's the way it works. I have come to seek and to save what was lost. I did not come to shun those who are separate from God, but rather to seek them out and to bring them back to God. He's telling the Pharisees, you're about building walls between yourself and the people. I'm here to knock the wall down. I'm here to build a bridge between myself and those people. I'm here to reach out to them. So this is the mission of the Son of Man. Last week we saw the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. This week we see that the very mission of the Son of Man is to seek out the sinner, to seek out the person who is not walking in obedience to Torah, to seek out the person who is not approved by these religious leaders and to draw them unto God, to call sinners back to a relationship with God. This is the mission of Christ. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? Number one, do I see that Jesus has come to seek and save sinners like me? Like me. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn us. That's what, you know, the, the most famous verse in the Bible supposedly is John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, you know, so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. If you continue on in the coming verses, you're told God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know why he didn't send Jesus here to condemn us? We were already condemned. Jesus didn't have to come to get me lost. I was already lost. Jesus didn't have to come to bring God's wrath. I was already under the wrath of God. He came to get me out of it. That's why he's here. That's why he has come. Jesus came to seek us out, to call us to God, to forgive our sins, to restore our relationship with the Father. This is what he's come to call us to do. And the only requirement is that we recognize and confess our sin. He is gracious and just to forgive us, to cleanse us, to remove sin, stain, and power. Because see, what Jesus is saying here is, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. How many of us were righteous and not needing salvation? None. None. But see, here's a reality. You know who was hearing Jesus and saying that they were the righteous? The Pharisees. See, they built the wall in the wrong place. They're convinced the wall is between me and God and those sinners out there. And Jesus is saying, no, the wall's built in the wrong place. <laughs> the wall was between you and God, and you're on the side with the sinners because you are one. And I'm here to break that wall down. So the question for you and me is, do I openly recognize my sin or do I spin it? See, that's what we're being told to do in our culture. Whatever your sin is today, no, it's not really a problem. You remember, we, we saw last week, I actually quoted a, a theologian a commentator, David Garland, who said, you know, in, when Jesus spoke, son, your sins are forgiven, that scandalized everybody around him. We look and say, why is that a scandal? Of course, God owes me forgiveness. No, he doesn't. <laughs> no, he does not owe forgiveness. We, we ought to be as scandalized as they were. We assume forgiveness. But here's the reality. See, friends, we, we have to open up and own we are sinful. That I do have a problem. That I stand under the, the wrath of God and I stand under it justly, righteously. And that is true for all of us. So do I humbly receive the doctor who's come? See, it's like if I go to a doctor and the doctor says, you have this terrible disease, and I say, no, I don't. Here, you got to go through this treatment. It's not going to be pleasant, but it'll cure you. No, I don't. What's going to happen to me? And whose fault is that? See, the doctor's revealed our problem. Do I humbly 
recognize that and own up to it. Secondly, coming out of that, do I humbly ask Jesus to forgive my sin? That's what he's asking for. See, that's the amazing thing here. You remember the story with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus comes down and he clearly responds to the gospel. Oh, Lord, this is amazing that you've come and you would eat with me. Meanwhile, the Pharisees are, I don't have a problem. Which side are we like? Have I ever responded to the gospel? And, and I want to speak, this is true, brothers and sisters, whether you're here or if you're not a brother and sister yet because you haven't responded to the gospel or you and I are Christians, okay? I can live under the weight of my sin even as a believer. Do I recognize this? Do, or do I live under the weight of guilt and sin? No sin is too big for God to forgive. I've had people say, you don't know what I did. I don't need to. I know this, the grace of God is greater. Because I can give you a piece of information, you don't know what I've done. Okay? Do we, do we see that? Are we free from the, the guilt away? This is not a license to run out and sin, because sin's always destructive. That's why God hates sin. Sin always distorts, destroys everything that it touches. So God loves us too much for us to continue walking in our sins. All the sins that our culture wants to celebrate and do all that, it's just destruction. But God is gracious to forgive. And this story is recorded for this very reason, to give us hope that Jesus will take us no matter our sins and struggles. And all we do is, like Levi, say, I'll leave all this stuff behind. I, I confess, I open up, I am the sick. I need a doctor. Do we recognize that? And I want to encourage us as well. This is meant to be hope. You may have a friend. You may have a child. You may have a, somebody you deeply love that is wandering, that seems to be shut off to the gospel. Friends, nobody was sitting there that morning and saying, you know what? I think this Levi guy, he's about to do great things for God. Nobody believed that. Nobody thought Saul of Tarsus, when he headed off for Damascus, was about to, you know, he's going to become one of the big leaders in this church and is going to write most of the New Testament. Nobody thought that. This is meant to give us encouragement. Levi, the tax collector, is not beyond the grace of God. He's not beyond the ability of God to come and confront and say, follow me. And brothers and sisters, that needs to give us encouragement. If there is somebody that you are praying for and they are struggling and they are shut off, do not give up hope. Pray for them. Love them. Reach out to them. Don't build walls. Break walls down. And trust that the same gospel, the God, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of who? Everyone who believes. The gospel is still the power of God. If, if you had known me when I was 16, not raised in the faith, nobody at my school picked out the very weekend I got saved. Nobody picked out, that guy's about to get saved. Drunk out of my mind on a Friday night, smoking dope, I don't even remember the night. And 36 hours later, I'm standing down at a, at a stage with David Wilkerson and people throwing needles up on the stage. And I'm like, you guys are really sinners. <laughs> I didn't have my theology right yet. No, and then I walked back in on Monday morning and my friends were like, did you get a hold of some bad dope over the weekend? What are you, what are, what's this Jesus stuff and you got a Bible? I'm like, I don't know, I got saved. Nobody, you do not have a friend. You do not have a family member. You do not have a child. You do not have somebody you love for that is beyond the pale of the grace of God. Amen. Pray for them, love them, and, and ask God to work because he does it time and time again. 
be encouraged by this. Uh, I uh, and hear this. There, there's an old hymn called Come Ye Sinners. I'm just going to read a few lines out of it for us to, to hear. Let this, yeah, we're actually throwing them up on the stage. Hear that this is God's word to us. And again, whether you've never come to Christ or if you've been a believer for a long time, hear God's word. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity and joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing. Doubt no more. Come ye needy, come and welcome God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. That's out of Isaiah. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. If you're a believer, you look at that and say, amen. That is exactly what I've experienced in my own life. Brothers and sisters, hold on to that hope. And if you are here, and again, I say this even as a brother or sister, if you are under the weight of sin, let it go. You're, you are not able to out the grace of God. I'm not saying that to excuse sin. I am saying there is nothing in your past. Don't sit at the tax collector booth and say, I've done too much. It's never true. Second thing to us, and we'll come to the Lord's table. Am I more like Jesus or the Pharisees? Y'all want me to stop? <laughs> I wish it weren't so. I can embrace the grace of God, receive forgiveness of my sin, and then in turn, and be like a Pharisee. The problem, see, this was what Francis Schaeffer saw in himself and his fundamentalist companions. They had built up all these walls. They were all known about everything that they were against rather than what they were for. It was a spirit that had consumed them and it almost turned Schaeffer himself away from the faith. Do we understand and see that? And this is especially a temptation in our current culture. Okay, let me, let me do a little cultural exegesis here. We live in a lawless culture. We live in a culture that says there is no right and wrong. And so what's the temptation for you and me who know there is right and wrong? They don't want law? I'm going to be about the law of God. But friends, we're supposed to be about the gospel Amen. of God. Amen. The law is there, and no matter what they're saying, they can't get away from it. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. It is in creation. It is in, con in their conscience. It is there. What they need is they need the gospel. There's a temptation in our lawless age for us to be so busy speaking the law that we're doing it at the expense of the gospel. We never get to the gospel. And when we do that, we're becoming legalists in the process. There's our current culture war and politics that make everything about division. People make money out there by keeping us divided by building walls between us. And we can easily take part in it. And we start demonizing those with whom we disagree, and we start seeing them as beyond redemption. That guy's a tax collector. That person races doves. <laughs> right? And I got news for you. You can shake your head about the racing doves, but you know what? I think we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to feel that way. What in the world was that about? Okay? Um, we, 
we get personal news feeds okay we, we belong you know you ever support a group and they start sending you things and everything is horror stories of what they are doing and again the wall is built Who, who's the they in need of redemption humans that's that's who it's for I remember being asked by someone one time years ago a person that was part of our church and they said I don't understand who are you trying to reach and I said humans but which group of humans the sinful ones that was my answer which sinful ones I don't break it down beyond that if you're a sinner I want you to come to Jesus I don't care about all that other stuff but see there's an entire industry that's telling us don't view it that way break it down into all these groups and you need to be worried about they because they are doing this off somewhere else and it's after you and again you're gonna get contaminated if you don't that's the entire wrong spirit for us to do and we're encouraged to make secondary issues primary and to shun those who disagree that that is what our whole culture is doing I want to speak to church listen be like Jesus say you know what yep this person's working with the Romans <laughs> they're making some poor choices but you know what the grace of God's greater and the gospel's more important and I'm gonna reach out to this person and so if we give into that mindset it causes us to view other people as the enemy to build walls to protect ourselves from them so that they don't infect us I want to encourage you the grace of God is stronger than their sin how about instead of worrying about whether I'm gonna get infected by their uncleanness I think that Jesus might infect them with the gospel through me is it possible that that the gospel work with me here might be stronger that the gospel is sufficient and that doesn't mean that I agree or I condone everything that's going on but it means I'm willing to build a relationship I'm willing to sit down and eat with you and this needs to be what is on our heart and I can say I got a lot of areas that I really screw up greatly but Linda will even tell you I've had people leave our church excoriate me say nasty stuff and if you want to have a cup of coffee sure when can we go have a cup of coffee because you know what no matter what you have said or what you have done it is a small amount next to what I have done to God daily in thought word and deed and so you know what I don't care that's fine because the gospel is powerful and maybe if I'll just sit down and have a cup of coffee the gospel will work not not because of me there, there's nothing in me I'm just a I'm a less than a jar of clay I'm a I had a messed up jar of clay but there's treasure inside and the treasure is the gospel those who work with me say amen um, so I, I want to encourage you it's not about compromising or condoning sin it's about a spirit that's freely received grace and we freely give grace you're blessed be a blessing it's not about compromising or condoning sin it's about a heart full of faith that God's spirit and word are powerful enough to open eyes and draw people to Jesus just like they did with me Amen. thanks be to God when I was a messed up kid despite all the good my parents had done all the good they had done thanks be to God that there were a couple of Christians that were willing to listen to my stupidity and spend time with me and work with me until the gospel broke through thanks be to God that they had done that so as we're getting ready to come to the Lord's table and I know we've gone a little long but I want us to think through this and do it is there anyone that the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind where I've thought or acted more like a Pharisee than like Jesus I want you to think about that is there someone that the spirits bringing to mind where I can reach out like Jesus did to the tax collectors and sinners is there a Levi I don't know who that is I'm, I'm asking is the Holy Spirit bringing anybody to mind because if there is let's be on mission 
you know how we're going to end the meeting today, right? You know my final words. You are blessed by the grace of God. And so am I. Why was God gracious and kind to me? Why, why was he gracious and kind to Greg, like Greg was saying today? I have no idea. I could have continued wandering my way, but it had nothing to do with me being here, having any interest in God or the gospel, much less being given the privilege of getting to share and teach God's word. But God was gracious and kind. So is there someone that the Spirit is bringing to mind to say, Lord, I want to see you work in their life the same way you're working in mine. And we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I'm going to begin by reading, actually, and I, I didn't know, and Greg didn't know I was going to read this, but Greg read from Ephesians chapter 2 earlier. I'm going to be continuing picking up here shortly after where he left off and read from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And I want to encourage you, hear God's word. This is for us as we come to this table. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and you were foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. If you are here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come to this table because this table is the Lord's table and it is open for all. If you're not a believer, you should let it pass because this is a statement that I realize, yes, I'm one of the sinners that Jesus came to call. I need his grace. I need his mercy for salvation. If you believe that, then I encourage you to join in with us. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we take this bread, symbol of your body, which was broken for us. Lord, in taking this this morning, we humbly confess that you came to call sinners that's me. Lord, it's not someone else needed salvation. 
it's me. And I therefore confess my only hope of salvation is your righteousness and your atoning work in my behalf. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, we take this cup, the cup of the new covenant, the cup filled with your blood, which was shed so that our sins might be forgiven. Lord, we thank you that by your blood we are forgiven and we are free. We are purified and cleansed and made right and just and holy before our Father. Lord, this our works could never do, but your blood is sufficient to seal our place as the people of God now and forever. We receive this cup with joy, saying thanks be to God for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Let's stand together. And as we do, I'm going to cry out to the Holy Spirit to work in our midst. And if there's anything, again, that the Spirit is speaking to you, any particular situation or person, and that may be, again, either directly someone that the Lord is calling you to go out and make amends to or to initiate relationship. It may be somebody that you're praying for. Let's cry out for God's grace. Lord, we are so grateful for the gospel. Lord, every one of us who are believers can testify we were like Levi sitting in that tax collector's booth. We did not offer you anything. You had no need of us, but we were desperately in need of you. And we are grateful, Holy Spirit, that by your work we heard the call, follow me. And by the grace of God, we have risen up to follow after. Holy Spirit, I cry out and I ask that you would fill us now. I cry out and I ask that if there are areas where we have been more like Pharisees, where we have built walls, that you would reveal that to us. And Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would demolish those walls. I pray that you would break them down. Spirit of God, if there is any area where we are laboring under guilt and we believe that somehow our sin has left us disqualified from hearing and responding to your call, I pray that you would shatter that wall. I pray that you would reveal to us fresh and new the depth of the mercy of our God. I pray that you would reveal to us fresh and new the greatness of the righteousness of Christ that is ours through the gospel. Lord, I pray for anyone that we know and love and whether it was through our actions or others, but they seem to be cut off from the grace of God, those who would seem to be far away. Jesus, you came and preached peace to us when we were far away. Lord, we cry out for those people in our lives. We ask that you would reach them. We ask that your powerful gospel would be the power of salvation in their life. Oh God, hear our prayer. Oh God, rise up and scatter away your enemies. Oh God, let your gospel prosper. Lord, let it prosper in my life. Let it prosper in my family. Lord, let it prosper in the relationships. The very people that may seem to be so far off, Lord, I pray you would show your greatness. Lord, call them that they might respond and walk with you. Father, I ask that you would do all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now, grace, mercy, and peace 
from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, be with us in truth and love. Brothers and sisters, as you have been blessed with these, go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.